Hi, this is Susan Swain. I'm the host of C-SPAN's Q&A podcast. We're taking a few weeks break as the summer winds down and want to use this feed to introduce you to some of C-SPAN's other interesting nonfiction podcasts. Afterwards brings together best-selling nonfiction authors and influential interviewers for wide-ranging hour-long conversations. In this episode, longtime Republican political consultant and Trump administration alumna Kellyanne Conway discusses her book, Here's the Deal. She's interviewed by Donna Brazil, Democratic strategist, campaign manager, and political analyst who served twice as acting chair of the Democratic National Committee. Q&A will be back with new episodes on September 11th. Kellyanne Conway, best-selling author, political strategist for decades. You have been a pollster to our political leaders, our corporate leaders, nonprofits. You have been in the limelight, in the spotlight. But all of a sudden, you decided to write a book. What prompted you to tell your story? And you missed something in my bio. Big fan of Donna Brazil. Thank thank you you. for interviewing me today. So this is my memoir, which seems a little bit odd at 55, because God willing, I have decades of life left, Donna. Yes. But people are always interested in the story behind the stories. Say, where did you come from? Did you grow up in a political household? Was your father political? Was your mother running for office? What was it like? Um, What inspires you to be? And how did you learn to see all that stuff on TV? And what is Donald Trump really like? How was it to work in the White House as a woman for President Trump? So I try to answer all of that and more. And I felt, ironically, as somebody who has spoken, as you have, Donna Brazil, millions of words in public, I felt that people were speaking on behalf of me or at me or about me and not really knowing me, or, and or I was speaking on behalf of other people, including a president and a White House and a nation. So it was truly my turn, mm-hmm. in, some, in some instances, to set the record straight, and others to really just pull the curtain back, not just on the Trump White House, because this is not a tell-all and bore most, like so many of these other books. Right. This is really my story, and in some ways, it's a very unique story about the circuitous path being raised by a single mom in a house of all Italian Catholic women going all the way to the White House, being a working mom of four school-aged children all the while I'm doing that job. But in other ways, it's really an everyday story. It's every girl and woman's story in this country because it does show that still, if you have faith, if you listen to the people around you, if you're willing to say yes and accept no as your career unfolds, if you put family first and you allow everything else to unfold around that, and you get a little lucky, as I have all along, great things can happen. So you were raised uh, as a Jersey girl, southern Jersey, between Philadelphia, Atlantic City, I believe ATCO? ATCO, very good. ATCO, uh, as you mentioned, Catholic family with uh, Italian, Irish, Italian roots. Uh, But your mother, Diane, was a very special, was a very special woman, I should say. Special in the sense that she took good care of you. She understood your needs. Um, she supported you. She was a working mom. Uh, but there was a uh, early on in the book, you talked about that moment when your mother uh, caught you saying <laughs> uh, a couple of bad words. And she walked in and she with that big gold cross and she admonished you. What was it like to grow up, not just with a single mom, uh, but also growing in a family with with your aunts and your grandmother? I mean, what was that like? Donna, thankfully, my mother is still with us, Diane. She lives with us, and she's a, a, a great everyday present force in the life of our four children, which is amazing. You know, my mother was the f- original forgotten woman. Mm. And I think President Trump talked about many years later. She was forgotten by feminism, forgotten by her husband, left at the age of 26, no child support, no alimony for us. And she just dusted herself off like so many American women have and figured it out, Mm -hmm. went back to work, never thought she would with her high school diploma, wanted to be a stay-at-home mom of six or seven. I'm an only child. So life life happened, and her best laid plans didn't work out, so she figured out another way. And she really devoted her life to me, never remarried, never had other children, and in making me the center of her life, thought it would be best for both of us to move back to the old homestead with her mother and two of her mother's unmarried sisters. So I always say these four adult women and one child, and then we turn the pyramid upside down. It's like one woman and four children now. <laughs> um, and, and so my mother, in devoting her life to me, gave me a great example mm-hmm. of what it means 
to be committed, to be loyal, and to have faith, family, and freedom. I don't remember her ever having a political conversation that I can recall. But she voted. It was her civic duty, her constitutional right. She just missed the ability to vote for uh, President John F. Kennedy. She wasn't old enough, just as I just missed voting for President Ronald Reagan. But I know that they were all inspired by this handsome, young, Camelot, Catholic president, tragically taken from us too young. Uh, but there was my mother one day with my best friend, Michelle, I was visiting. We were freshmen in high school. And it wasn't that I said a few bad words. It was that I violated one of the Ten Commandments, is that I took God's name in vain. Yes. <laughs> and she came around the corner with a gold crucifix off her neck and with a spoon, the ladle and the pot of gravy, as we call it, tomato sauce to the rest of the world. What did you say? And I said, I don't know. What did I say? Don't you ever take God's name in vain. And then out of her mouth, this wonderfully gentle woman with the gold crucifix shining out of my mother's mouth were F-bombs and F-bombs. She said, don't you ever take God's name in vain again. So it tells you an awful lot about, um, I think in some ways, how progressive the women who raised me were, Mm -hmm. ironically. They talked about uh, abortion, adultery. They talked about um, inflation. They talked about everything you can imagine except politics. And because the matriarch of our extended family, my grandmother Antoinette, lived in that house, that swinging screen door mm-hmm. had just a flotilla of constant traffic of people who knew if they had a problem or just needed a warm meal or an open ear, they they can come there and right. do exactly that. And so I grew up, I think that um, George has often told me that the world is like your focus group. And I think it started right there around that wooden table in Little Acco, New Jersey, where I would sit underneath and listen to adult conversation. The gift of my professional life for decades, Donna, was going out literally around the country and listening to people night after night around larger wooden tables like this in focus groups and learning to appreciate the essential wisdom of Americans. And no, they weren't all just Republicans or conservatives I was talking to. I was deeply interested in what everybody had to say. Their stories. What motivates them? Their stories, their frustrations, their aspirations. And you know as well as I do that the essential wisdom of Americans is often lost on people in this town, in Washington, D.C. And if we put them in charge of representing their, their states, their congressional districts, they would do a pretty solid job. They have thought this through again and again, and we should all be listening more to them. Echo was a, a small town. Um, I, th- I think you lived off the highway, which I was interested in knowing a little bit more about, so I had to Google uh, your <laughs> town. But uh, as I got deep into the first couple of chapters about your childhood and growing up in, in that environment, I learned something that I didn't know about you is that uh, you picked blueberries, right? I packed blueberries in the packing shed. You, you packed them, I not packed picked them. them. Yes, I packed them, which meant that there are 12 pints in a crate, mm-hmm. and we would take out each pint put a piece of cellophane, a form to smash it down, and then a rubber band. And I was the fastest that I had ever been because <laughs> we were told the faster you were, the more money you get paid. But the, the pay was as follows. It was 16 cents a crate, so 16 cents mm. for 12 pints packed. And then by the time I left eight summers later, Donna, it was 25 cents. But I made a few thousand dollars back in the day, ages 12 to 19, packing blueberries and that was legal then. Everybody calmed down. It's been outsourced now to machines. Machines do that Aww, work now. Yes. But to grow up and literally have a summer job as a teenager where you have to show up and be ready to go by 8 a.m., work until 4 or 5 p.m., an hour break for lunch with your friends and your family members to appreciate the value of teamwork, punctuality, a work ethic, pride in your work, that you're not just there for the money. You're there because you're making a difference for someone somehow. I credit that blueberry farm for an early, early education Mm -hmm. on what it means to be a hard worker. That plus, I grew up around small business owners. My aunt and uncle had a roadside farm market 30 yards in front of my house. Then it expanded into frozen Italian food specialties because they would feed people who came to buy a bucket, a a crate of blueberries or a bucket of peaches. They'd, They'd say, what do I smell? Oh, sit down, have some brujol, have some, we just made fresh ravioli. And people would encourage them. So that's America. You say, let me take my skill set and expand that into a commercially profitable business. So I grew up around small business owners and entrepreneurs. My mom took jobs that um, allowed her to be with me in the mornings before school, pick me up after school, 
and uh, and I just credit her for day after day showing me the value of of work, of of hard work, and honest day's wages for an honest day's work, and that's really the backbone of this country. Yes, but um, soon Kellyanne would discover that there was life outside of uh, Southern New Jersey, and you decided to come to Washington yes. D.C. to attend. Um, college, Trinity College. Um, tell us about that experience and that drive down and, and that first moment that, that you arrived here. What what caught you? What made you decide that D.C. was the place to be? So my parents did not go to college. Again, I think fairly typical for somebody maybe of my age and stage in that area. And my mother drove me down here herself, and I know it was very hard for her to just leave her only child in Washington, D.C., in the storm. I'm sure she cried the whole way home. Thank you, Mommy, for allowing me to spread my wings and do that. I really wanted to be in Washington, D.C. I wanted to be a car ride away from home, three-hour car ride. I had been accepted at Boston College, and it was the year after Doug Flutie won the Heisman Trophy, and the applications were way up. Uh, We went to see Boston College, lovely campus, fabulous school, of course, but I really wanted to be in Washington, D.C. I felt even early on I had this a little bit smitten and bitten by the political bug, um, Donna. And I think a lot of that had to do with meeting Ronald Reagan very briefly. But you were excited being in about his company. Geraldine Ferraro. That's, I, I, I wrote that down I and I said, wait a minute. Uh, you, you were excited about Geraldine Ferraro until you met Ronald Reagan. I was indeed. So just to back up, it's the summer of 1984. You'll remember it well. Yes. And it's uh, the Republican and Democratic National Conventions are going on. Now, the Democrats went first, party out of power. And I was so enthralled with Geraldine Fry. I thought, well, there she is, just like the women who raised me, an Italian Catholic woman. She was a congresswoman from Queens. Walter Mondale, the Democratic That's nominee, right. tapped her. And she's going to give her a primetime speech and accept that nomination as the first woman ever on a major party ticket. And I listened to her, and I thought she was a great messenger, but the message really didn't grip me the way President Reagan's message the next week at his convention gripped me. Peace through strength, calling out communism. Um, I think he just had a very joyful way of communicating free market capitalism, of communicating why it's important to invest in military strength, why it's important to, going back to, uh, a, an honest day's wage for an honest so day's you were, work. So you were attracted to his message, or were you, were you attracted to the fact that you had a sense that he could lead his instincts? What both. was it? Both. I think it was both of the mm-hmm. above. And indeed, there was a big sweep that election cycle. I mean, oh, obviously, I he won every every state, including Geraldine Ferraro's New York. He won every state except Walter Mondale's Minnesota in the District of Columbia. But I got to meet him because at that time, Republican presidential candidates saw New Jersey as competitive and they came in campaign. And here was Ronald Reagan in Hamilton, New Jersey. In September 1984, I was co-captain of the field hockey team as a senior and I had been Blueberry Princess, so I got to meet him. It was only a brief encounter, but you know how that goes. Yes, and do. you're hooked. And I know you know that because you have... You know, you've been the counselor, the consultant for the advisor for so many strong leaders uh, in your party, but across this country. And I know now you mentor so many young people. And so you've seen it on both sides. And we have to remind ourselves that those chance encounters can be so incredibly important to people. And it was to me. But you grew up and before we get into candidates and there's so much uh, in your book that I've learned about not just the Republican Party, but also some of the individuals that you consulted with. I mean, it was a a very well-balanced book in terms of telling us about not just your journey, but also the journey of the Republican Party. So I want to go back to that moment. You lived in an area with Democrats. Yes, definitely. You were probably raised being Catholic in New Jersey with a lot of Democrats. I was. But in Ronald Reagan, you saw something else. A lot of other Democrats saw that, but at the time you were not registered to vote, right? I was not registered to vote. I missed voting for Ronald Reagan by two and a half months. Oh, that's right, because you were born in January. January 20th, Inauguration Day, that's right. So I missed being able to vote for him. I was still 17 for his re-election. You're absolutely right. Uh, the first words in my entire book, here's the deal, Donna, you know, are by every imaginable metric, I should have been a Democrat and a yes. liberal and a feminist and probably a man-hater, too. My father left. The men in my life, my uncles, my cousins, the expanded family members, all these great male role models in my life uh, who stepped in and, and, and stepped up for me, they pretty much were all members of the private trades, carpenters and welders and iron mm-hmm. workers, yes. plumbers, and um, who... You know, graduated high school with their skill certificate and their high school diploma, went to work right away and have had those jobs 
for decades being able to support themselves and their families, the most wonderful people. So, you know, they tend toward the Democratic Party. Irish and Italian Catholics at that time, I think, you know, not to overgeneralize, yeah. they absolutely had an affinity to the Democratic Party. Um, obviously, John Kennedy, John Kennedy and, and it was the height of feminism, no fault, divorce, Roe versus Wade. So I, I talk about that. And Ronald Reagan, not unlike many other people in my generation, inspired me with a very optimistic message. I also felt he wasn't scornful toward other people. He, he was very inclusive in his words. And I grew up in a house where people came through that back door. You know, my Aunt Marie, God rest her soul, for whom Claudia is named Claudia yes. Marie. She's my mother's oldest sister, the only one to ever go to college. And a big mentor in my life died suddenly at the age of 66, 20 years ago. And it's a huge loss for our family. But she packed so much life in. I just told my kids, you know, here's a woman you never met, always ready for the next adventure, always off key, singing and dancing with gusto, mm. the way you should with abandon. But she was very progressive. She was an eighth grade public school math teacher. And she had run the family business. And she got mad at the George Herbert Walker Bush campaign and at him in 1992 for saying that uh, Bill Clinton was a, a draft dodger she said in Vietnam. She said, well, if that were my nephew, I would drive him to Canada. I would help him get out of that. Um, she, I believe she was pro-choice. She was, you know, she's sort of a, a feminist icon vocal. in the way. She was very vocal. Yes. And, and yet, so I had every sign. And she had, you know, she would bring friends over of all backgrounds and all affiliations. And, you know, looking back, we didn't know that. People felt comfortable to be in my house. And nobody felt the need to say, and I'm this and I'm that. They just all felt comfortable and welcomed. I love growing up that way because I tell young people now, Donna, they're very worried about not being able to speak up or not being able to say who they really are. That goes for right, left, and center in many places and spaces. I tell them, listen, what God hath made, no man or woman can ever cancel. You hold your head high and, and, and you be who you are and you be proud of that. And you make sure that you let your light shine. Don't ever let anybody dim or diminish your light. I learned that in that house. I didn't so, learn it in any book or any any political conversation. Your family had such a, um, well, they were role models. But more importantly, they were your friends. I, I, I got to know your family by um, uh, reading the way you guys would drive the three hours down to Washington, <laughs> D.C., packed it just reminded me of my family. Maybe it's something Catholic about us that you always have to, you know, make your own uh, sandwiches and, and bring your own food as if the people in the next town didn't cook as well. And I love that. I said my mother would have loved your, your, your mother and your grandmothers. But I want to talk about you. You're in Washington, D.C. You're clearly becoming more and more interested in politics or public service. Uh, but it wasn't until you went to law school and graduated that you really got into Poland. You met Frank Luntz, who's another friend of mine, Bill Werflin, Neil. Uh, you you got into the business, but I kept reading and reading and reading. I'm like, it was all men, similar to my own background, that when I finally got to Washington, D.C., I had Paul Tully. I had all of the guys, yes. but there were no women. There are no women. No women at the table. What was it like for you on the Republican side being the only woman in the room, especially at that age, uh, just starting your career? Were you ever discouraged? Did you ever just want to just walk, uh, stand up and walk out? I read in a book that you were very patient, but God knows I, I'm sure there are some... There were some days that you just wanted to walk out. There's no question about that. And there were many days that the men in the room would have preferred I walk out of it. <laughs> no, <laughs> no doubt there. And that's why you can't. Mm -hmm. If you know your skill set and you know who you are and that you've got something to add to the conversation and to the consideration, and to the analysis, then you do that. I learned early on that I had some gifts and some insights that maybe others did not. Mm -hmm. Not just because I'm a woman, but because I was listening to women. And there I was as an unmarried non-mother, um, as many women are and choose to be in this country for many, many years. I got married at 34. I had my first children at 37. I had Charlotte and Vanessa in my 40s. They say, oh, there are no eggs left in your 40s. I said, well, there were two rolling around in there. Their names are Charlotte and Vanessa. <laughs> but that's really, that's the growing percentage of women in this country too. The point is, because I had learned to listen to women specifically, I was able to draw on that in these different conversations mm -hmm. and tables that only included men. And I started to do that. And because so many of those men in the old and particularly the new boys network were excluding me from being able to pitch certain business at the Republican National Committee or in this company or that company, it forced me to go 
and find work elsewhere. So I had major clients like Martha Stewart living on the media or Major League Baseball or American Express at the time, major clients. And that allowed me to listen not just to what likely voters were saying, but to what all of America was doing. How are you making your decisions of how you spend your time, how you spend your money. You show me what you do on a weekend. Are you going to a professional sporting event, a kid's sporting event? Are yes. you, as a, as, a, as a woman who doesn't have children of her own, I guarantee you a woman like that, because you and I have been there, are spoiling the heck out of other people's kids, giving them some money, giving them a lot of guidance and mentorship and life lessons. So I, I learned to not put people in these neat demographic political boxes either. So sure, we can all slice and dice the electorate by gender, by race, by age, by political affiliation, by socioeconomic status, by geography. But that's not the beginning or the end of the story for any of us. Mm-hmm. You let people tell you who they are and what motivates them, and you, you learn to appreciate. So sure, there were, there were many times, but you know, CNN plucked me out of wilderness and gave me a TV contract. Yeah, I wanted- And it transformed, as you know, it transformed my relationship with America and with a lot of Washington because no longer could the guy say, oh, she doesn't know that much. She's, you know, she's, she, she's not going to show up. Is she, is she a TV star? Is she really a pollster? All of a sudden, senators and candidates are saying, I saw you on CNN. That's a great point about how taxes affect kitchen table economics. You know, I, I said you did a lot of things. Um, in life before becoming a pundit. With the, and I love the way you spell it, P-U-N-D-E-T-T-E. I had to, I wrote that down. Punditry without the talking points. Um, being, a, being a political talking head, we used to call ourselves talking heads before they gave us an actual title, pundit. <laughs> but you were effective in, in, in that role because you had an opportunity not only to talk to the country, but also listen. Uh, but... I also believe you impressed a lot of people within the Republican establishment. What did you give the Republican establishment that they did not have at that time? And I thought when you described it in a book about what you brought to the table, um, it was something that would lead you eventually to becoming Donald Trump's campaign manager, as well as the first the first Republican woman to ever manage a campaign, but also the first woman to win a major presidential campaign. You had something. And I want you to say it because I know what it is. Because I often, whenever you and I were on TV together, I would look at you and I say, huh, okay, I get it now. Two things. They call me Sally Soundbite. I think it's my ability to distill complex information into simple, easy to understand phrases and ideas. You're a wordsmith. And a wordsmith. And, and I, I honed that skill at my $8 an hour job at the Worth and Group Ronald Reagan's Polster. And then for Frank Luntz, not much more than $8 an hour. I love you, Frank. But, uh, and, you know, he really, I, I credit Frank Luntz with really giving me my great opportunities to get back into polling after I had a law degree. But Donna, I had something else that I brought to the table of the men, which was they all talk like pollsters. They all talk like people who have data. What do the data mean? And even over the decades of having my own polling companies, Mm-hmm. I would say to my team, okay, that's the data. When you're writing the analysis, stop every two paragraphs and ask yourself, so what? What does it mean? How do we communicate it to people? What are they telling us? I'll give you a great example. I saw in a race that you were uh, the campaign manager, I saw early on in 1997, I believe it was, or even 90, 1997 or so, this ridiculous polling question that asked um, which of the following would you vote for a president, Al Gore or George W. Bush? Now, 19, the summer of 1997 is closer to the 1996 election than the 2000 election. Why are you asking people this? And how do you know who the candidates are going to be? Mm-hmm. And the, the answers at the time were 48% and 47%. Mm-hmm. And, of course, everybody goes on TV and says, oh, my God, it's tighter than a tick. Uh, Gore and Bush are both under 50%. It's a one-point race because you didn't have your calculator that day. You don't know 48 minus 47 is 1%. And, wow. I looked at it totally different. I said, come on, you're telling me in 1997 or 1998 that only 5% of the country is undecided? 48 plus 47 equals 95. I thought 5% of the Gore and Bush families were still undecided, let alone the rest of us. So I learned to respect when people say, I don't know, I'm not sure, I need to know more information. That's a rich insight. Most of the male pollsters were never willing to take, I don't know, for an answer. 
they'd say, well, which way do you lean? I don't, I don't, well, which way, if you had to guess, if you had to say right now, and eventually you just surrender, you say, okay, I lean Gore, I lean Bush. That's, you're not a committed voter. You're somebody who was right the first time. Right. I don't know. I need to suss it out and watch for the next couple of years. So I learned to appreciate and make people feel comfortable to say, I don't know. Is this a quiz? It's not a quiz. It's your opinion. Your opinion matters because you matter. And the last thing is I was able to distill. Republicans would say to me, how do we get more women? And I go through this long war and peace. And I thought, you know what? I need an elevator pitch as well. And I'd say, you know what? Women tend to think more Republican, more conservatively when they get marriage, motherhood, mortgages, mutual funds. And then one day I realized, and then I had a longer version for it. And then one day I realized, well, I have a mortgage and a mutual fund. I don't have a marriage or mother. And then I realized, wait a second, women are choosing which of the four M's, one, two, three, four, zero, whatever it is that they want to do in whatever sequence. And then Mm -hmm. I started to realize that women are product of their choices, not victim of their circumstances, that we should be holding them up. And, you know, respectfully, I thought at the time the Democrats were always back, you know, putting Republicans in a corner on just abortion. And I said, excuse me, women... We women don't talk to us just from the waist down. You got to talk to us from the waist up. That's where our brains, ears, eyes, heart, and mouths are. And I would do clever things like that as well that would outrage some people and engage other people. You know, I engage some and rage others, but at least it was memorable. But you were also telling the country the story of women. Women were evolving. And uh, as women voters became more and more active in the electorate as as voters after the the year the so-called uh, woman in 1992. Yes. I think you were one of a few pollsters and, and, and TV analysts who got it right about the needs of women and why they were making the choices in the electorate. So let's talk about a choice you made. Um, and I kept reading. I'm like, <laughs> I mean, I know there's a George. Where's George? Where's George didn't come into your life until you were in your 30s. Yes. Uh, introduced to you by Ann Coulter. Yes. Uh, I cracked up because I've known Ann for a long time. I've known Matt Drudge, some of the people you mentioned uh, in the book. Of course, I know I didn't know their relationship to you, and I had no idea that Ann persisted on trying to get you to meet George. Uh, and finally, you decided you would take a day off, not a weekend off, and go <laughs> to the Hamptons where he had rented a house. He had. So tell us the story of. George Conway. So I, of course, uh, dated a guy named Raul Fernandez for the better part of a decade on and off. But, and he and was he also was, a mentor. He was a great mentor of mine. He was my immediate boss when I was an intern in Jack Hepp's congressional office. And Raul, to this moment, um, is a very dear friend of mine. Ha- he's happily married to a wonderful woman, have three great kids. But he was a great mentor of mine. So I really wasn't interested in dating. I was focused on my business, my Welsh Corgi, Jesse. Yes. Uh, running. I'd taken up running and had talked at the time with Chris Matthews, who we both know well. He said, you know, how do you keep your weight down? I said, the only thing that ever helped me was running. So anyway, I was disinterested. I didn't want to date anybody. I always said to my friends, it's not them, it's me. I'm sure they're nice. Mm-hmm. But Anne persisted, and she introduced us. I drove up from New York City to Quag. That's a beautiful hamlet in the Hamptons. George was renting a house that August of 1999. Mm-hmm. And we finally met. We were supposed to meet in January of 1998 and didn't. So 19 months later, I certainly was still available. I wasn't dating, and luckily George was or was again. And I call it intrigue at first sight. I thought he was very curious and mysterious, and I enjoyed his company. But, you know, George then persisted. I thought what was different about him was that he he came up with charming ways to court me, and he wanted to come to Washington, eat at fancy restaurants. I'm like, good God, I did that all week long yes. with, with clients. I just want to sit here and pet this Welsh corgi watching this crazy movie, <laughs> eating out of my Ben & Jerry's containers. But then he wanted to go to sports, sporting events. I'm a big, as you are, a big sports buff. That's right. Helped me to really um, bond with the men in my life as I was mm. growing up. My uncles later, my father, my cousin Jay, certainly. And so G- George and I would court at Yankee Stadium and he had tickets, and then he had World Series tickets, and then we went to Eagles games. So we fell in love, and and we married. Um, we we fell in love, and we got engaged about a year later, four, fourteen months later. Got married six months after that, and uh, you know we've been married for twenty one years. And I, people really focus on the parts of the book. George is the tweeter. Um, Donald Trump is the tweeter. George and what's happened now, me thanking him at the end of the book for yes. his love bringing me to marriage and motherhood, but me also saying, I, I just don't know what happened. I, I, I'll never understand. I have consternation, some frustration, but real consternation and sadness that I feel I was 
you know, traded in for Twitter. But George and I, we spent a lot of years together um, building our family um, very much in love as, as a great couple. Um, and also just staying out of the public eye, believe it or not. Like, sure, I've been on TV here and there, but we weren't household names. We weren't well-known. Mm-hmm. Kellyanne Conway wasn't a household name. Kellyanne Conway's husband wasn't a household name. And so all that changed almost immediately. And I'll tell you this, Donna, you could not find many pictures of us and our kids online anywhere. I've never been on Instagram, never been on Facebook. I don't begrudge those who are. That's a wonderful way to communicate, but I never aspire to be an Instagram mom who's showing the world how happy we are. We just were happy. And yeah. and so it's all been very jarring in that way. Um, but, you know, we we also, I think George and I separately had focused on our careers. We got married. I was 34. He was 37. All four of our children were born while George was in his 40s, so we're older, wiser parents. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful for all that. A and lot you of the book- spent a lot of time, yes. I mean... First of all, I, I don't know George, but I follow him on Twitter. I'm one of his followers. I didn't know George. Uh, I've known you for a long time, yes. but I, I never got to know George. I know there was a George because it was Kellyanne Fitzpatrick, and then she became Kellyanne Conway. So right. something happened, clearly, and that <laughs> something was George. There you go. So I got the backstory on George. Uh, George also went to a law school. He's a lawyer like Kellyanne Conway. He worked at a a very prestigious yes, firm. He best. was a partner. Uh, he was wealthy and well-off, but you were also wealthy and well-off with a beautiful life in Virginia while he had a beautiful life in New York. Sports sort of brought you two together. First of all, I was a little jealous of all of the games you went to. <laughs> I'm not going to talk about Anytime. that. I mean, But seriously, I mean, the man took you to all of the best games and not just the World Series, but the Super Bowl. I mean, come yes. on, he has good taste. He does. And he treated you... Very well. But this is also, in addition, you know, you're married, you're in love. But I'm, I'm reading about the, t- the pregnancy with the twins, right? <laughs> I've never been pregnant. But here George throws a party and then announced that... On Mother's ma- Day. Yeah, on Mother's Day that you two were expecting twins. How? And then he was in the hospital. He was with you at every Absolutely. birth. Uh, barely made it at the last birth. I mean, you guys barely made it. You wanted to get to New York. But this is your friend, your husband. It's my person. Your your confidant. Um, And, you know, it's it's a little painful uh, as an outsider. I'm never involved in anyone's marriage, thank God. Um, But I'm I'm reading your book, and it gets really personal. Yes, so much of it is a loving, nostalgic look backward at, at George and mine life together. There's no question. And uh, those, those were great times. Obviously, he was by my side and very funny stories. Donna, first of all, thanks for actually reading the book. You know, some people interview me and they ask me questions that they could have asked me without a book, a 500-page memoir, or that suggest to me they haven't even cracked it open. So I appreciate you reading it. So yes, I mean, this is, this is a love story and a family that has nothing to do with Twitter. Mm-hmm. And that's where George became famous. And um, as Kellyanne Conway's husband on Twitter, and now, I guess, on TV, occasionally on TV. And yes. look, I just want to make very clear, George's vows are not to Donald Trump or any political party. Or they're, they're, they were to me, that's to right. love, honor, and cherish. But we moved to Washington, D.C. as a couple, as a family, both having accepted big jobs from President Donald Trump. And people seem to want to forget that or never know it or gloss it over. It's a very important part of the story because of George and Kelly and Conway. You, you tell the story. I mean, look, um, and I, I really should get to the part because I, I should just stop right now and say, you and I also have another thing in common, which is the reason why I couldn't stop reading the book. And that is um, your ex-boss, like my ex-boss, called me into a room with nobody in there, looked me in the eye and say, you know, can you run this thing? Can you be my campaign manager? And you basically say, would you... Think about it you, and, ca- and call me back. Yeah, yeah. I, I saw that. I also saw that in the book, and I'm like, oh, God. Then I wrote on the front page. I had to go back. <laughs> as, I, as I started to read this book, I immediately wanted to call you, invite you over to sit on my porch in our white rocking chairs drinking wine. I saw so much. I will be there. But I, I want to go, go back. You're right about George. George had a big job, and he declined it. Well, he accepted it in Donald Trump's White House and in his administration. He wanted to be Solicitor General. He received a big nomination from President Trump that he did accept, and it was for 
to be the chief of the civil division of the Department of Justice. That's a big job. Big job. He had started interviewing staff. He went to see his offices. This was not sort of just a, a conversation. And I was the one reluctant to come and work in the White House. I write about in the book. First and foremost, it's the kids and moving four kids down to Washington, D.C., who at the time were 12, 12, 8, and 7. And it was particularly hard to move in seventh grade. Um, At the time, you know, Washington Post reporter said, hey, we see Claudia's got this change.org um, petition, stop the comedy kids from moving to Washington. What's that about? I said, well, Claudia is brilliant, obviously, and objectively brilliant and beautiful. I said, but she, she also is, she's also, um, honest about the fact that she, like most Americans, don't like change. We all pretend we like change and revolution and new things, and we go to McDonald's every night and order number three in the minivan. You know, we're right. creatures of habit. But she also, and, and they, I said, you know, she doesn't want to go to Washington to be known as Kellyanne Conway's daughter. So I told her, Will you cure cancer and I'll be known as Claudia Conway's mother deal? And she probably will one day because she's brilliant, like her three siblings. But, you know, George is the one who wanted to come to Washington, come to Washington. Donald Trump was his way to do something different from the law firm, retire from there and do something totally different. And then he changed his mind about Donald Trump. And I can't just uproot but, but my kids we just member, left. Well, he's a member of the Federalist Society. He, I don't a know if he's a founding member in the Yale chapter, member, I'm pretty sure. Yale chapter. And, and uh, was in his black MAGA. MAGA person. Yes, he's in his black MAGA hat on election night, crying, saying she did it, she did it, about his wife. Mm-hmm. And Donna, I could, you know, people, I write in the book, people say, without Kellyanne Conway as campaign manager, Donald Trump could not have won in 2016. That's debatable. But what will never be in doubt is that without George Conway encouraging, insisting me to take my shot, as Hamilton and Eminem, Eminem tell us all to do, to take my shot in 2016 and say yes to that campaign manager manager offering position that Donald mm-hmm. Trump offered, gave me. I could not have been campaign manager at that level because George said, I'll help more with the kids. You have to do this. He can actually win with you, Kellyanne. And George had witnessed a lot of the New Boys Network and the Republican consultancy of walking RICO violation of folks always giving each other money on the gravy train. He had witnessed many of them denying me and sidelining me right. and trying to diminish me. He had heard my pitch so many times of what I would do if I had ever gotten my shot. He said, here it is. Take your shot. shot. And, mm-hmm. and you know, George is the only one I told that night that Donald mm-hmm. Trump offered me the campaign manager job. And then, and then George still was my person all through that campaign, through those very fraught days after Access Hollywood. He said, you're not leaving that position. Why would you do that? We don't want Hillary to be president. Um, he went to the debates. He flew to the Las Vegas debate 12 days after Access Hollywood came out took the red eye back. He drove me to Trump Tower the day that I was the only woman in the room at Trump Tower in the residence. Um, after the Access Hollywood tape came back, he drove me back the next day as I boarded the, the, the black SUV with Donald and Melania Trump to go to St. Louis. So he was all in, and he was all in not just for his wife, but for Donald Trump as president. Now, he changed his mind, but not after a full year of visiting the White House as a guest of Donald and Melania Trump. Um, doing cool things with his kids there. We went to dinner at Jared and Ivanka Kushner's house a whole year later. That's all fine, but the facts matter. The facts matter. And you know what, Donna? I just do not choose to live my life online. I choose my life to live my life offline. And I don't think people who don't know you on social media are necessarily your friends. I mean, lots of them want to be your enemy, but they're not your friends. And I just, I just take from my friends and my family offline. And thank God, you know, I've got a great... A great posse of them. You, um, I, I know we can go more and more deeper into this conversation about the tweeting and George and and the former president referring to him as you know, Mr. Kelly and Conway. I mean, it, there's a lot there that I didn't know you were enduring. Um, just it must it must be gratifying that you're away from some of that stress, but it's also still public the tweets um george calling the president narcissistic and you're working for the president you have to get up every day and get to work and your colleagues must be what snickering behind your back some sorry for me face some were snickering and some were working overtime to get the president to get rid of me to bounce mm-hmm. me from the White House. I give Donald Trump a ton of credit, President Trump, for not ever coming to me, which he could have, 
and saying, Kellyanne, we love you. You'll always be part of this extended political family. But I got to worry about Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin. I can't worry about George Conway's tweets, in part because he wasn't worried about George Conway's tweets. He was being the president. He mentioned George to me probably three times um, specifically. And frankly, when you quote the president about George, that was also very sparing as opposed yeah. to George. George has sent over 100,000 tweets and counting, 100,000. I think when President Trump left the White House, it was about twenty or 30,000. It certainly wasn't 100,000. And he's still at it, and this is a free country, and George can tweet if he wants, but there's a cost to spending your time a certain way. And, um, you know, I choose not to spend my time that way. Mm -hmm. I don't want to, I don't want to regret living so much of my life online. Um, Now, let alone with these four kids, let alone later. But, but look, um, it's a hell of a way to try to get your wife. Of course, I'll always love George, but, but, but Donna. And can you all men? It's a hell of a way to try to get your wife to leave her job, to try to force her out of her job. You think he did it to get attention, to get you home? I think he did it to get attention, and he got attention. But people should not confuse, you know, popularity with notoriety or fame with infamy. Um, George changed his mind about Donald Trump, I guess changed his mind about me. And, And what the media did was, what I wasn't really ready for and I write in the book about is sort of the cult of George Conway, you know, all these wine non-moms sending goofy packages to our house as if they know him. You're weird. But but thanks for the dark chocolate. for folks like Dana Bash and others to ask Uh, you, right? Was it? I don't know at the time if it was fair Mm -hmm. because that was a particularly newsy week. And I like Dana a lot. She's a friend Mm -hmm. and I respect her work. She's another one like you and me who's, you know, just, she. I think she started as an intern at CNN practically runs the place, I think is one of the best people, really best is. reporters there. Um, but, but Donna, you know, I don't know that it was fair because it was a very newsy week and it was a cheap shot. And I didn't ask Dana about either of her marriages or her, you know, I, I, I'm sensitive to the fact that her son Jonah may be watching. So I don't say certain things mm-hmm. I um, and I wouldn't do that. But look, all of this comes back to a very simple principle. We should be looking out for each other at some level. Mm-hmm. And no, I don't think every question is fair game. I don't. And I think people dissecting me, my hair, my looks, my voice, my marriage, my ch- I, it's it's inappropriate at some level because you're distracting but you're from, the, figure, from the but Kelly, you're distracting yeah. from the news of the day too. I don't think my marriage is anybody else's business and it's usually being dis- dissected by thin-skinned terrified troubled people living in glass houses, have you noticed? I also think there's this unspoken pact among civilized people. That we look out for each other's kids. True. You know, I know I you do. I know oh. you do. You don't need to be a mother yeah. to care about people's kids. It's not even it's not even an affirmative criterion. In my book, I give huge shout outs to the non moms out there mm-hmm. who I know are spoiling other people's kids. But Donna, I need to say, because I don't know how close we are to being at the end of this interview, people who are watching this need to know how I feel about you. I wanted you to interview me because America needs to see two women at the height of their careers, at the tops of their game. Sitting at this table are 50%, is 50%, one half of the women who have ever been asked to run a U.S. presidential campaign. True. The <laughs> other the other two are not here, two other uh, Democratic women. We're the only ones. And I feel like women, it's a great time to be a woman in America in so many ways, if you right. look at the statistics. But what's really missing is that representation, not just in politics, because that's a choice if people want to run, and more and more women are in both parties, but but actually as the practitioners, as the people who are in the ears of the folks who are actually going to run the country or want to run the country. I think that's what's incredibly important. I I, I, I want to know how much, I want you to know how much I admire you and also how much I learned from you. You know, Alison Camerata at CNN told me the day after Donald Trump made me campaign, she said, you know, you're the first woman to ever do this for Republic. I said, I literally sent a live to you. I didn't know that. You know, a third woman ever. I said, well, I know the other Three, but I know Donna Brazil the best. Um, she's a friend of mine. But look, you smoothed over a craggly path for me and for a lot of other women. And people need to know that. I know Joe Biden, Donald Trump, others say, let's unify the country. This is how you do it. By talking to one another. Yes. And by learning from other, yes. uh, one another. And I think something that you learned when your friends would come and visit you at your home by listening, not yelling. But listening, but sometimes yelling can be quite entertaining and informative. And I learned that about your family, too. Trust me, you and I should have been neighbors because I would have been over. Yeah, the matriarchs. Uh, and, and, and with the wine. I, I, I got to tell you in the time we have left, and we got enough time to talk about this. The road to 2016. 
Now, as a Democrat, I read this one way. Mm-hmm. As a political strategist, I really absorbed a whole nother dimension. And some, I, I wrote this down on one of my notepads, and you basically said voters are real. The media is looking for who can win. I'm paraphrasing you. But voters want to know who can lead. Yes. That's the difference between electability, which is this fictional game played by pundits and media, all kinds of media, and the politicians themselves. Can you win? Can she win? Can he Mm -hmm. win? And that question, particularly the Republican Party, has diminished and denied so many great candidates from rising farther. Why? Because if you ask who can win, you're missing the question that voters ask, which is who can lead. And their definition of leadership has nothing to do with political viability. It has to do with where are you in the economy? Where are you in national security? What are you going to do about education and health care? Do you hear me? And will that be part of your plan and your governance? So I told Donald Trump on August 12, 2016, when he offered me the campaign management job, he said, can you do this? And I said, Mr. Trump, I would need three things in return. I wasn't sure he would give me any of them, let alone all three, because no one ever had. And he agreed to all of them immediately because he's a smart, savvy business guy who makes crack decisions like that. He, he knows you know, when to take a risk and where the reward is. And one of the things I asked him was, we need to shift away from electability, which you've already blown to smithereens because everybody said, you can't win, you can't win, you can't win. And focus on electoral college, focus Mm -hmm. on electoral college, which is how you do or don't win the presidency. Mm -hmm. And he agreed to that immediately and was willing to take that and go to states and cities and states that were definitely part of Hillary's blue wall. Mm-hmm. That Republicans had not won since 1988, 1994, Pennsylvania, Michigan, so you're taking Wisconsin. You're my questions now. I was going know. to ask you about how did you understand the blue wall? Uh, you also, again, going back to what I've learned in this book, the hidden Trump voter that we didn't see. Uh, you did crack the blue wall. Uh, and then also this whole notion that you figured out that the, the, the Republican Party, at least, was frustrated with the status quo, with the establishment. And you you took key messages from both the Tea Party and the MAGA movement to understand that Donald Trump would not just have a campaign, but a movement. A movement. That's a lot to put and, and one question, but here's the question. What gave you those insights? You tell us a little bit in the book, but there are some things that I want to know that sauce, because you talked about that sauce uh, and defeating Hillary Clinton. You And again, I thought these insights, in my judgment as a political strategist, tells us something about the electorate we're going to face in 2022 and 2024. So what was that hidden sauce? Why was Trump the perfect messenger? And why is that movement here to stay? All excellent questions wrapped into one. Wow. So very quickly, 2016 witnessed the convergence of a couple of factors that helped Donald Trump get elected president. One was him as messenger and elevating into the public consciousness to the top of the issue set issues like illegal immigration and trade, which had been nowhere on on the radar, particularly trade. If you think about a guy standing up and saying, we're going to take on China, they're eating our lunch, and we're going to recalibrate these trade deals and make them more fair to the American worker. We're going to put America first by making sure we have a manufacturing base, by making sure that we're not shipping our jobs and wealth legally overseas, by making sure that Mexico and Canada and the United States have a modernized fair trade deal. And so other people really wouldn't touch that, Donna, because it's not high in the polls. Right. It doesn't make you electable. So he was willing to do that. Number two, President Trump was a true political outsider. Most Americans see themselves as true political outsiders. They're not part of the system, which means they're not part of the sclerosis in the system either. And he had in Hillary Clinton, I think, a fairly damaged candidate. That's not a personal insult. I'm saying she had lost to President Obama. Obama. eight years later, because he was seen as the outsider, fresh face, new blood, new ideas, was able to stand up and say, I was against the war in Iraq, you voted for it, and some other things. Um, And so she was seen eight years earlier as the establishment and went out of her way in 2016 to basically say, well, that just means I have experience. I'm now, I now have been Secretary of State. And I, but I noticed in the Washington Post ABC News poll and told President, told Mr. Trump the day he made me campaign manager, mm-hmm. her blue wall is penetrable. Mm-hmm. If you're willing to go visit the states that are in her blue wall, and he was, a day in and day out. And 
also recognize that 62% of the ABC News Washington Post poll say that they find that Hillary Clinton is neither trustworthy nor honest. Mm -hmm. If you feel that way about a presidential candidate, what can possibly follow the but? But I'm going to vote for her, but I want her to be commander in chief Mm -hmm. and the president of the United States. So what I told him was, if we can make this election a little bit more about Hillary, at least even it out. Because at that moment, the election was about Trump. Trump. All about Trump. And he liked it that way, and Hillary sure the heck liked it that way. Mm -hmm. So we tried to even it out a little bit and remind people, when you go into that ballot box, it's not going to say Trump or not Trump. It's going, which many people saw it in 2020 as Trump or not Trump, by the way. True, true. But I also coined the term in July of 2016, the undercover hidden Trump voter. I said it to the equivalent of NBC, I think it's Channel 4 or so in London, and it, I, it was to international ridicule. Oh, the hidden Trump voter will still be hidden on Election Day. But that was my way of explaining that people who don't seem or look to pollsters mm-hmm. as would-be Trump voters or non-Hillary voters are going to vote for Donald Trump. They wouldn't have voted for Mitt Romney or maybe Jeb Bush or maybe even Ted Cruz or John McCain, certainly. John they're, McCain. Going to vote for, they're going to vote for Donald Trump because he truly is the political outsider who comes pre-verified as a job creator and businessman who's making these promises and, and is showing up in your community. Why did I say it? Well, I noticed something else Trump was doing, that when he would campaign on it in every nook and cranny in this country, he would give local interviews. The national media missed it. They were already in their media corral saying, how long is it going to take him to say fake news and make fun of me, me, me? Right. He was in the back giving interviews to local print, radio, and TV reporters, meaning if you lived in that community, if you were in Waukesha, Wisconsin, if you're in Macomb County, Michigan, you're going to have interviews with him to get you through the week. Mm-hmm. So I think they missed that. And what I noticed was he was willing to take his message directly to the people, and the people were showing up. So he really transformed the way political campaigning happens. It definitely got cut off in 2020 because COVID, of course, prevented him from doing a lot of that type of campaigning. But when I said the undercover hidden Trump voter, it's not people feeling they're embarrassed to say they vote for Donald Trump. It's Hispanics and African-Americans and women and young people and and people um, who had never voted or hadn't voted in a long time or never voted Republican union members for sure. You know, here in certain states, not majorities, but three percent more here, five percent more there, seven percent more there. And that was building a coalition of folks who said, you know what, I think I've had enough. Now, I think without the, I think without the country voting for President Obama in 2008, they took a huge chance on somebody different. Right. Certainly, they elected the first African-American president. But even beyond that milestone was the fundamental chance that people took on somebody who really didn't have a ton of experience in Washington. They were willing to do it. And then they did it again. Now they reverted right back to the guy, Joe Biden, who's been in Washington for 50 years. And most of the polls will tell you mm-hmm. that people feel to date that was not a very fruitful. Indeed, it's been a failed experiment. So and we'll know more about that in, in, at the, after the midterms. But in those four years with Donald Trump, you were in a lot of important meetings, discussions. I read about bringing your kids to the White House, the yes. kind of fun and joy that your family would have. Yes. But I don't want to talk about the White House events. There are a lot there, and I'm sure they had a great time. You were there during some mementos, I mean, some big moments, um, big occasions. And he relied on your voice, your leadership. What could you have done differently? And let's use one or two examples. Um, We know that the president celebrated the tax cuts but he probably didn't like the returns on uh, during the midterms in 2018. We know COVID hit during this yes. moment. So what, looking back at your experience in the White House, what would you have done differently? What would you have tried to change in terms of, and you describe a lot of it in the book, and God knows I can, like I say, COVID threat. There were so many things you had to deal with. There were. What do you remember most? And amidst all that, there were subpoenas and investigations and Russia collusion. I mean, a lot of logs thrown in our policy path and just trying to, you know, forge ahead and focus on the commitment he made to the people. And I believe that in those first few years, particularly before COVID, when you see the economy that was rebuilt, the energy independence, the unemployment rates being the lowest ever for African-Americans, Hispanic-Americans, Asian-Americans, women, I felt that it was a it was a White House administration, the Trump-Pence administration, Donna, that 
helped the job creator, the job seeker, but also the job holder, which has always been in my sights. You know, mm-hmm. people talk about, oh, you didn't build that job creator entrepreneurs. That's fine, but that's what, 7% of the country? And then maybe 7% lower now, people who are job seekers. But the vast majority of American households are the job holders. And that's how Donald Trump got elected. And his commitment was to say to them, hey, you, you're not even looking for a job or worrying about replacing mm-hmm. lost job, but we have two, three jobs in the house. It doesn't feel like enough. How did that happen? So really trying to relieve the burden on the cost of energy, regulation, small business formation and thriving, and certainly the economy. And I also think the president, you know, trying to hold China to account or Iran to account or uh, Kim Jong-un to just trying things other people weren't trying. The great strides he made on the drug crisis, he and First Lady Melania Trump, who is his original counselor to the president, the one person I say in the book that he actually reserves fear about. Um, mm-hmm. He confides and, and consults us, but he fears her. He cares very much what she thinks. Mm-hmm. And so a, an amazing relationship to behold, really. And so what I would have done differently, I've thought about this. I wasn't involved in his 2020 reelection campaign at all. $1.4 billion. They should have won overwhelmingly and outright to the point where nobody even has to question the election results. It should have been more Reagan 84, um, frankly, than, than, than what it was. You felt you were pushed out a little bit? I felt that, look, I was offered late in the game, um, my own plane, my own staff, leave the White House. I was told it's going to be Don Jr., Ivanka, the vice president, and you who have your own team. And I, I did I did not do that because it wasn't my mm-hmm. campaign and I was already leaving. I was about to leave for my family and that was not going to change. I couldn't shift over from the job as senior counselor, the president that I love to go and, and actively campaign. But um, one thing that I, I think should have been done differently, I think that campaign should have been more reflective of what the president was able to accomplish, including on COVID. Instead of hoping and pretending that mm-hmm. the economy is going to come in as the big issue, recognize that women particularly as the chief healthcare officers of our households, disproportionately a majority of the healthcare consumers and providers were very nervous about COVID. Mm-hmm. And the kids were home from school. The women were pushed out of the workforce, particularly even the men, if there were men in the household, they were home working from home. So it really transformed the country and people were not just frustrated, they were worried. Mm-hmm. And I felt that um, what the president was doing early on with COVID the, the surge in supplies, the PPP, the PPE, the gowns, the masks, the covering 100% of the cost for testing and then treatment for uninsured Americans, the supplying 95 million meals to school children who rely upon them but weren't in school to receive them. I mean, so many great things that your viewers are going to hear about this first time from me. Yeah. Not standing up and saying that and doing that and sticking with it. And I think too many people had COVID on an egg timer. Okay, we're done with that now. You know, the virus had a way of... Uh, persisting. But I think Donald Trump, you know, um, developing therapeutics and vaccines in record time is one of his greatest accomplishments along without take, with taking out Soleimani. And maybe I should have spoken up a little bit more about, I think, the behind the scenes friction. You know, mm-hmm. I don't like to be the whiny woman. Like, right. oh, they don't have me in this meeting. Oh, they're ignoring this great work stream mm-hmm. that somebody has put together, not me, somebody else has put together over a series of months that you should really look at. I think it was a lot of gamesmanship that way. Um, so, and, and, and I know, Kelly, in the time we had, we could not really talk about the media, some of the controversies. And you, you and I both know that if you are out here in the public, you're going to make news and you have been a newsmaker. You're a troublemaker, too. Uh, but we're not going to talk about the personalities in the White House. Thank you for confirming what I thought, you know, <laughs> was the truth about certain of your colleagues, and I'll leave them nameless. Um, And also, you know, as you began to put the end of this book, which was really remarkable uh, because of your journey, uh, the moments, the final moments with your dad in the hospital talking about sports, the Eagles, um, talking about your upbringing. In the final months, you really describe a period of hell. And as I was finishing up the book, it led to January 6th. It led, it led to another encounter or a lunch, a dinner with the president. I forgot if, I think it was a lunch. December 22nd, yes. It was a lunch. And here we are now, um, some two years away from the next um, presidential election. We're just a few months from the midterm elections. What, what gives you hope? So much. First of all, this is America. 
for all of our scars and our battles and our divisions, our cultural cleavages, our political divisions. It's a beautiful country filled with amazing people. And as I tell my own children, don't, we have to stop worrying about people who have more than us. We have to start worrying more about people who have less than us. And nice. that gives me a lot of hope for the future. I'm also hopeful that the 74 million Americans who voted for Trump-Pence in 2020 and were not at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, who, mm-hmm. like me, had nothing to do with that, never saw it coming, didn't participate in it, are still in shock and not in awe, not that people mm-hmm. should be languishing in, in prison and jail not knowing what their fate is. But I am hopeful that this is America, and we're resilient, and we need to be optimistic But I am very worried that people are suffering right now, and they're suffering because of policies that are harming them. If they have an energy job or if they are relying upon filling up a couple of trucks for their small business, filling up that gas tank, I'm worried that babies right now aren't getting infant formula. I'm worried about problems big and small. And you saw these problems as a senior White House counselor to the president. Yes. So, uh, Kellyanne, here's the deal, a memoir, a very personal, a very deeply, in my judgment, spiritual book about your life, your struggle with your family, but also the rise, the rise in American politics to lead a a winning presidential campaign, your guidance, advice to the president, and, of course, your thoughts on the future of America, including what happened on January 6th. So... This is a great book. I hope you find Thanks more readers. Reading, uh, look at this. Uh, <laughs> I think I have a couple of pages left that I didn't mess up that I would like you to autograph for I me. Will do that, but course. thank you for joining us. Thank you for uh, sharing your story, your insights, and of course, um, thank you for being a great mom to four beautiful children. That's the key. The most important job I'll ever have. Four chambers of my heart: Georgie, Claudia, Charlotte, and Vanessa. Thanks for reading, and I'll see you on the white porch.